Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Stephen Harrison. Stephen Harrison was present in Galileo's observatory when the latter was hauled away by the Catholic Church. He promptly kept Galileo's high-powered telescope for himself. Of course, this is all a lie. Mr. Harrison did not do any of that. But if you would like me to lie about you, head on over to Patreon and see if there's anything there that'll take your fancy as you get some lovely perks while also supporting the show financially. More on that later, but for now, enjoy this latest episode of The Thirty Years' War. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to The Thirty Years' War. My name is Zach Twomley, and this is When Diplomacy Fells podcast, And I'm so glad that you've decided to join me today for this history podcast where we don't talk about anything in current affairs or politics because, let's be honest, we've got enough of that. And I've got enough of it as well, (laughs) to be quite honest. I mean, let me put it this way. If I can get threats and Holocaust deniers just by talking about history, imagine the possibilities that could arrive in my inbox by talking about things that are happening right now. Oh boy. We're not going to talk about things that happen right now. We're going to talk about the past. More specifically, 400 years into the past. More particularly, the Thirty Years' War and poor old Frederick V, the Elector Palatine, and how things weren't going all that well for him. Last time we finally arrived at that infamous part of the story, the culmination of the Bohemian Revolt and its collapse after the Battle of White Mountain and Frederick's subsequent flight from the country. For all intents and purposes, the Bohemian cause, along with that of the Winter King, seemed to be lost. Not only was Frederick facing down invasions of Bohemia from the Catholic League, he also learned that the Saxons had invaded in the north, and the Spanish had invaded his homeland along the Rhine. There seemed nowhere for him to go, and it seemed impossible that he could continue the struggle against Emperor Ferdinand II and the Emperor's numerous allies. For a number of reasons, though, Frederick did continue the war, and because he did, we don't talk about the Third Bohemian Revolt. We are talking now about the Thirty Years' War. For the next four years, based out of his new Dutch home, Frederick continued the struggle, making use of scattered allies and ambitious generalissimos to pile pressure on the Habsburgs, as he hoped against all hope for a miracle. It was a bitter 
depressing and revealing time for the Elector Palatine, but his very tenacity and refusal to compromise kept the war going and ensured that White Mountain was an important chapter for sure in this story, but that it was not the final act of this story. In this episode, we're going to examine the early part of these years for Frederick and the allies that he relied on, because, somewhat surprisingly, not everyone abandoned Frederick. We'll not dwell too much on his Dutch or English friends here, but don't worry, I'm going to give them their own attention in their own separate parts and episodes still to come. And for the record, it's raining now and it's really miserable outside, but I think that kind of fits very well with the tone of the episode here. At least, the tone is going to be miserable if you're a fan of Frederick and his prospects. But if you hear patter-pattering rain, that's not your imagination. That is, in fact, the awful Irish weather. Anyway, let's begin. I will now take you to November 1620, the immediate aftermath of the disastrous Battle of White Mountain. I commend all to God. He gave it to me, he has taken away. He can give it me again. Blessed be his name. In such a way did Frederick reconcile his despair with his faith, following the very trying experiences of the second half of 1620. Spanish forces had occupied the lower Palatinate's major towns, including the capital, Heidelberg, by the end of November 1620, which prevented any succour arriving for Frederick from his homeland, if indeed any would have been possible. The sack of Prague for a whole week had followed Frederick's departure, and since there had been barely any time to prepare the exit, much plunder had been available to the hungry soldiers. One English observer who was there at the time noted that The loss of soldiers was not much unequal, but the loss of cannon, the baggage, reputation, is the imperialists' victory, who, as it seems, hold Bohemia now by conquest, and all immunities and privileges are now void. And if a new establishment by petition shall be obtained, it will be only the law of the conqueror, who doth already finally call those of the Protestant religion to account for what they have, and put it into safe keeping, so that they taste already their condition to come. Frederick's first port of call had been to escort his wife and children to safety, and this was achieved by marching steadily towards the mountainous Bohemian-Silesian border, and taking refuge in the fortress town of Glatz, They would be safe here for a while at least, since Silesia, unlike Bohemia, Lusatia or Moravia, had not been made to suffer invasion or occupation, at least not yet. Resting until the middle of the month in the fortress town, by the 17th of November 1620, Frederick made his way to Breslau to speak with the Silesians, but they were not happy to see the man they had once chosen to be as their king. In fact, it soon became apparent that they would want as little to do with him as possible. While some nobles felt honour-bound to the oath they had made to Frederick in the past, others saw the writing on the wall, and they wanted to avoid the looming threat of ruin which John George's nearby Saxon troops, the nearby Catholic League troops, or even potentially a Polish invasion could easily bring. Frederick had been forced to rely on whoever remained friendly, and one such figure was Bethlen Gabor, the Prince of Transylvania, whose activities the year before had caused Ferdinand so much difficulty. Hungary was still in pieces and its loyalties were divided, but by December 1620, a truce had been arranged with the Emperor and Bethlen withdrew from Pressburg. Interestingly, Pressburg is the modern-day capital of the Slovak Republic, Bratislava. By leaving it, Bethlen left that important city on the Danube back in Habsburg hands. 
Frederick was unaware of these developments as they occurred in the background, but to the Silesian Diet, they likely would have made little difference. The threats from so many directions, and the tempting offer of Saxon mediation, compelled many nobles to try and dissuade Frederick from any further resistance. Under so many pressures, and aware that the costs of maintaining any sufficient forces in the field at all were becoming impossible to bear, Frederick had no choice but to approve of the Silesian requests. He urged them to remain true to their oath and to the confederation they had declared in July 1619, but by mid-December 1620, Frederick had left the province. And the Silesians wasted little time ignoring Frederick's pleas. By February 1621, two months later, Silesia had successfully appealed to the emperor's mercy and clemency and officially abandoned Frederick's cause in the process. With Bohemia occupied, Lusatia seized by Saxons, Moravia conquered by the Catholic League, and now Silesia pledging itself back to the Emperor, Frederick had officially lost the entirety of his kingdom. While he never dropped the title of King of Bohemia, his kingdom had evaporated. Learning of these successive defeats, Frederick wrote somberly to Count Thurn, one of his main advisors at the time. We entrusted to the Almighty, and accept with patience the reprimand that he sent upon us, May he let everything occur for his honour and for the favour of his believers. We did not force ourselves on Bohemia and Moravia. We could have been well contented with our patrimonial lands, but we put that aside upon their request and honestly did everything in our power for their lands. Now we receive the thanks that they explicitly agree to a treaty and after put forward ours for their sake and subordinate themselves to another. Now, whether this is laudable or honest, we let the whole world judge. Neither greed nor ambition brought us to Bohemia, neither poverty nor suffering will make us desert our dear God or do something contrary to honour and conscience. Reading between the lines of this statement of intent, it's evident that Frederick had not viewed his loss at White Mountain as anything akin to the end. If anything, the defeat was a punishment, a sign that he had been too disorganised or hadn't trusted firmly enough in God's providence. Rather than give up, he would work overtime and petition every Protestant potentate of any import within the empire to help. Someone, somewhere, would surely sympathise with his cause and be willing to bear the challenges implicit in this cause. And Frederick was determined to cast his resistance to the emperor, some might say resistance to reality, as a Protestant or even as a common cause. He arrived in Brandenburg, where his wife had recently given birth to their fifth child. Frederick was then made aware once again that his guests were not particularly pleased to host him. George William of Brandenburg, Frederick's brother-in-law, was no more able to ignore the emperor's expressions of displeasure than the smaller non-electors whose lands Frederick had passed through on his way to finding a safe haven or drumming up support. Frederick found the time to communicate with Ernst of Mansfeld, the mercenary captain who had been in the field for several years by this point, and Frederick offered him 30,000 florins to continue his activities and maintain his army in the field. To the Dutch, arguably his best hope, Frederick wrote letters to Maurice of Nassau, the Prince of Orange, and requested financial gifts, military assistance, and the resumption of old subsidies. It is possible that Frederick's newborn son was even named Maurice in a bid to sweeten the deal. None of this really seemed to matter to the Emperor, though, because on the 29th of January 1621, 
Emperor Ferdinand II issued the imperial ban against the Elector Palatine, effectively making him an outlaw within the Holy Roman Empire. This made it an offence to aid and abet Frederick, and would compel all princes to hand him over if he resided on their lands. Thus, Frederick determined that the empire was no longer a safe place for his family, and he determined to enter into Dutch exile in The Hague. Frederick's familial connections may well have helped this appeal. His mother was the daughter of William the Silent, and this meant that Maurice of Nassau was technically his uncle. Nonetheless, the ban against Frederick badly affected his cause and his ability to gain allies, since anyone that helped him would now be guilty by association. Already, Frederick's other allies, including Christian of Anhalt, had been issued with a similar ban, which had the additional effect of making their lands and titles forfeit as well. Frederick predictably dismissed the ban as yet another example of the Habsburgs' unconstitutional, disreputable behaviour. To an extent, Frederick had a case, since Ferdinand had not pursued the ban through the traditional process, and had instead leveraged his influence among the princes over the course of 14 months to acquire the necessary approval for the ban instead. Frederick could decry the act all he wanted, but the fact remained that since his lands and person were now open to attack, the likelihood of reclaiming his homeland, let alone the Bohemian crown, had become much more remote. Emperor Ferdinand had justified his ban against Frederick on the grounds that his actions in the past had been notorious and his crimes of breaking the imperial peace and acting illegally in the Bohemian Revolt had necessitated swift, harsh punishment. These developments in January 1621 shaped Frederick's policy because it limited his freedom of action. He would need allies before any of his losses could be recouped, but since so few Germans would ever agree to help him, he would have to approach the situation somewhat differently. Frederick's opportunity in this regard came in February 1621, when King Christian IV of Denmark hosted a conference of several Protestant princes, as well as several Protestant actors, including the English and the Dutch. The only problem for Frederick was that he had never been invited to this conference, awkward, in the town of Segeberg, and it was not guaranteed that those in attendance would not elect to simply eject him from the town or hand him over to the emperor in return for the emperor's favour. Frederick was thus taking a risk, but considering the circumstances, he had little choice. Who advised you to drive out kings and seize kingdoms? If your councillors did so, they were scoundrels. This was the frosty reception Frederick received from Christian IV of Denmark. It was clear that the Danish king blamed Frederick for all that had transpired, and he insisted now that his palatine nephew abdicate the bohemian crown, make a formal apology to the emperor, and return to his home on the Rhine. Frederick could not do any, and certainly not all, of this. In his mind, he was upholding not only his honour, but also the bohemian constitution and the empire's constitution. He had been elected, Ferdinand had been deposed, and the Bohemians had had the right to take both actions, according to the letter of majesty which the emperor had agreed to. In a theme which was to be repeated and which had already surfaced, Frederick sought to clarify his opposition to Ferdinand. He claimed that his actions had absolutely nothing to do with the imperial majesty as a Roman emperor, but only as a duke of Austria. Frederick's problem was with Ferdinand of Styria, the man who had been elected and then deposed as King of Bohemia. His quarrel was certainly not with Ferdinand II, Holy Roman Emperor. Thus, according to Frederick, this, among many other reasons, meant that the ban against him was 
invalid. The Danish episode had been illuminating, because King Christian IV of Denmark faced great opposition from the princes and estates in the Lower Saxon Circle, whom he was meant to protect. This opposition demonstrated that the Danish king couldn't expect to act arbitrarily in the empire. If he wanted to act in his capacity as King of Denmark, Duke of Holstein and the protector of the Lower Saxon Circle, he'd need the approval and cooperation of these three theatres first. Christian was moved by considerations about the empire's Protestants, and he did display a streak of militarism which was lacking in his Protestant counterparts, such as King James, for example. But for the moment, King Christian would not act. After his rebuke at his uncle's hands, Frederick travelled to The Hague, where he intended to establish his court in exile. He would arrive just as the Twelve Years' Truce between the Spanish and Dutch had ended, and the war between these two powers had resumed. Understandably, Frederick saw great opportunities in this resumption of hostilities. He likely suspected that the conflict would not stay separate from his own conflict for very long. After all, the Spanish were occupying his homeland. Frederick may have entertained hopes about the Evangelical Union, which had been effectively pacified in July 1620. Perhaps its members could foment enough anger and controversy over the imperial ban, and through this avenue more Protestant princes in the empire would be moved to aid his cause. Any hopes of this kind were dashed in the Union's stern February meeting at Heilbronn. It was here that after some discussion, the imperial ban against Frederick was tacitly accepted, though a protest was sent. A couple of months later, in spring 1621, with the truce between the Spanish and Dutch soon to expire, and Ambrogio Spaniola present with a large army, some ingenious manoeuvring on that veteran commander's part enabled the Spanish to coerce the Union to disband. The Mines Accord was signed between the Spanish and the Evangelical Union on the 1st of April 1621, barely a fortnight before the war with the Dutch resumed. As Spaniola had been instructed, it was imperative that the Evangelical Union not be in any position to strike Spanish positions in the rear, nor to threaten the Spanish position in the Palatinate along the Rhine. Endowed with a large army in anticipation of the resumption of hostilities with the Dutch, Spaniola effected a brilliant bluff against the Union, securing the knowledge that he had not been instructed to fight its princes, but that these Evangelical Union princes did not know his orders. The Mines Accord proved to be the final document signed by the Evangelical Union. As an organisation, it had been spinning its wheels for some time, and with its ex-commander-in-chief now disgraced and public enemy number one in the Empire, there was perhaps little else to do other than dissolve this order and return to a passive neutrality, in the hope that all would blow over soon enough. The hope was to prove forlorn, but on the 14th of May 1621, the Evangelical Union officially became no more. As Wedgwood wrote, The evidence of immediate danger had been stronger than the fear of disaster to come. Without a blow, the defenders of the Constitution had abandoned their leader and made way for foreigners and adventurers to fight the cause of German liberty on German soil. The judgment was somewhat harsh. The members of the Union could not have known or even imagined what kind of destruction was to come nor could they have anticipated that Emperor Ferdinand would go as far as he did. In addition, the Union alone should not have had the responsibility of fighting for the Empire's constitution, particularly when its members were only slightly less isolated than Frederick. The King of Denmark wouldn't march, neither would the King of England, and with a large Spanish army on their border, 
and a renowned general at its head, it's hard to imagine the Union following any other course. Hindsight, of course, is 2020, and hindsight would give the Evangelical Union good cause to regret this decision, but hindsight was also absent in the fast-moving developments and news bulletins of 1621. Frederick was soon to learn of the folding of the Evangelical Union, though since it had abandoned him in July the previous year, it's unlikely he placed much stock in its activities to begin with. Upon arriving in The Hague in April 1621, Frederick penned one of his numerous letters to his father-in-law in London, claiming that, I will live happily, not being able to look to anyone after God for the remedy of my evils than your majesty, in whose hands I put myself entirely, desiring to submit my will to his, knowing that he take to heart the conservation of his children. Frederick's mention of his children, who were, by extension, King James's grandchildren, may have been unintentional, but his appeals and those of his wife continued to draw upon the issue of family and of the importance of defending one's kin. Frederick's entreaties to King James were in vain, though, not because of the king's stubbornness, but because he refused to countenance any compromise. Frederick's submission to any form of mediation could only occur if that mediation was on his terms, and, as the historian Brennan Purcell wrote, because he would not damage his honour or admit any fault, it was hardly submission at all. Frederick continued to be optimistic. When King James promised 14 grand for the Palatine army's most urgent necessities, and an additional 6 grand for treating those suffering the worst excesses of the war, Frederick fired back a request for £50,000. While the emperor could not be reasoned with, Frederick did request that James send an ambassador to act in his name and to treat with Maximilian of Bavaria as well. Frederick certainly hoped that English pressure would move the Duke of Bavaria to negotiate the return of the Upper Palatinate, which he was then occupying, but to no avail. We're going to continue this story of Frederick's quest in a bit, folks, but before I do, I want to remind you of two little things. The first is that we have moved our merchandise over to Tee Public, which is a much better idea for my stress and everything else, and you can head on over there and get some great t-shirts and other merchandise for yourselves. I am in the process of streamlining things, because I realise that doing all of the shipping and everything else myself is pretty stressful. And TeePublic's service isn't just really intuitive and really reasonably priced. You can get a t-shirt for €11, Euro, in case you were wondering, which works out at about 12 or $13, I would reckon. But they're also really good quality. The t-shirts I got from there are far and above much better than the stuff I used to get from my old supplier, which was Vistaprint. So I would recommend if you hadn't gotten a t-shirt yet, make sure you do head on over and get one there. Because hey, Christmas is a-coming... And for the next several months, they do have some really good special offers on. Ordinarily, t-shirts will be €17, Euro, but they're down at €11 Euro for the next little while, so make sure you go and check that out. You can also just simply slap that logo onto pretty much anything. You can get a jumper with Bismarck's face on it for, I think, €25 Euro or so. It is very reasonable, so if you want to clothe yourself in my merch, you know where to go. Head on over there, give yourself a Christmas present early, or send it to someone else who wants to make history and have Bismarck's face on themselves. What else could you want? The link, of course, is in the description below, and by clicking on it, you'll be helping to support this show, because I get commission, which is certainly very nice in times like these. 
The other thing you should know, which you probably know already, is that we are on Patreon and for a fiver a month you can access Poland Is Not Yet Lost, which is a story that's only about 5% less depressing than this one because we're looking at Poland in the 18th century and we're currently at the point in 1720 when King Augustus II of Poland has basically just said, ah screw it, I'll be Russia's best friend and to hell with the future of Poland. It's a depressing but really fascinating story and I've been really enjoying getting into the meat and bones of it and seeing how Poland was used by its neighbours and how the story of decline isn't as straightforward as you might think. If that sounds good to you, then for a fiver a month, it can be yours. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. I've said it till I'm blue in the face, but we are approaching the four-year anniversary of me joining Patreon. And since I did that, this podcast has gone from strength to strength. It wouldn't be possible to do what I do now, to do this podcast while also doing my PhD. It would not be possible without your guys' support. It literally provides me with the wage to keep me going, support myself, support my family all that lovely stuff, and I can't thank you guys enough for it. It means so much to me, especially because by doing this, you're really helping to make history thrive, which really is what we're all about here at When Diplomacy Fails. So thanks for that, and thanks for putting up with these little ads, and now let's get back to the story. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. On the 5th of May, 1621, Frederick received a letter from King James, which read that the English embassy to the emperor would continue, and London would maintain the pressure on the emperor to restore his son-in-law to his lands in the Palatinate. King James insisted that he was obliged to do this by the law of honour and of nature, but he added that Frederick had to obey his emperor and render unto Ferdinand what was Ferdinand's. Perhaps James hoped that if he hammered home the point enough times, his son-in-law would agree to throw in the towel, admit his mistakes and return to the peaceful system of old. But Frederick, just as before, was unwilling to accept that he had erred, and he allowed this letter to go unanswered. 
Instead, Frederick seems to have believed that he could achieve better results through military means, and he planned to use what meagre resources and manpower and materials he had at his disposal to bring this vision to life. The pressure was definitely on Frederick, though. The Spanish assault into the Palatinate had effectively destroyed Frederick's homeland on the Rhine, and those advisors that remained in Heidelberg had sent him letters warning consistently about the dire situation which faced them. Famine was guaranteed because the peasants had fled, several important towns were under Spanish control, the few thousand troops still in the field suffered from chronic payment problems and low morale. Two events encouraged Frederick on, though. The first was the news that the House of Commons in London appeared far more belligerent and willing to involve itself in Frederick's struggle than the king did. Many in court and in the Commons believed that upon Frederick's opposition to the emperor hung the overall fate of Protestantism in Europe and perhaps the world. In June 1621, the Commons published a declaration which seemed to support whatever use of force would be necessary to defend the true professors of the same Christian religion, professed by the Church of England in foreign parts, being touched with a true sense and fellow feeling of their distresses as members of the same body. Its members searched for ways to support Frederick's cause. A coalition or alliance headed by the English and Dutch would be organised, and soldiers could be landed and moved out from their Dutch base. Such involvement would surely involve England in the recently resumed 80 years' war, and considering James's overarching goals of securing peace in Europe by using a Spanish marriage, and we'll get to that, there was no way that King James could possibly agree to these terms. This fact didn't deter Frederick from hoping that the Commons would influence the king, or that the latent anti-Spanish feeling accompanied by the anti-Catholic feeling would serve in his favour. Frederick was partially correct since anti-Spanish propaganda levelled against King James would reach a fever pitch in the coming years, as, again, we will look at in the future. But the Elector Palatine was wrong to anticipate that this would move King James away from his course. The simultaneous death, first of King Philip III of Spain, and then of Archduke Albert of the Spanish Netherlands, left something of a power vacuum in Spanish policy, which was filled by Spaniola's desire to complete the conquest of the Palatinate, And in this, Spaniola was supported by the Archduchess Isabella, who was the widow of the late Albert. 11,000 Spanish soldiers remained in the Palatinate under Spaniola, but the new king of Spain, Philip IV, claimed he would intercede with the emperor on Frederick's behalf, largely at King James's behest. King James's efforts to save his son-in-law's lands continued during the early summer of 1621, and he had even managed to arrange for a ceasefire in the Palatinate while the English embassy travelled to Vienna. The mission of this embassy was in many cases far too optimistic, but its cause was truly doomed by the sudden appearance on the horizon of Bethlen Gabor, a known ally of Frederick, and the news that further afield, Ernst von Mansfeld's army of 20,000 men in the upper Palatinate had crossed the border into Bohemia. Emperor Ferdinand could see the villages burning in the distance, and it was very hard for the English embassy to reason that Frederick was willing to stand down for the sake of serious negotiations. James had also claimed that he would promise to control Frederick, and this was exposed as an empty promise as well. Frederick could not be controlled, he would only be guided or advised, and he would certainly not be moved to submit to the emperor or renounce his past decisions. This act of humbling himself was, noted the 
head of the English embassy to the emperor, a man by the name of Simon Digby, the only way to guarantee the return of Frederick's lands. But Frederick wouldn't do it. He clearly favoured risking it all in another campaign to throwing in the towel. By September 1621 in Vienna, Count Onate, creator of the famed Onate Treaty, which divided the Austrian and Spanish Habsburg inheritances, was telling Simon Digby, that head of the English embassy, that it was better to lose no more time here, for that the emperor was so incensed against the Count Palatine, for that his ministers should be the aggressors in all parts. Another Habsburg figure in Vienna cautioned Digby that Ferdinand was determined to have either a general peace or a general war. In response to this, Digby did as he had been instructed, and warned that King James was prepared to intervene for the sake of his son-in-law, since it was a matter of honour to restore him. This intervention by King James, which in itself was highly unlikely given the king's actual policy desires, would mean an escalation of the conflict in the Palatine, and this was very likely to set a general combustion in Christendom, according to Digby. Ferdinand responded by promising to send an embassy to London, where James would be granted satisfaction. On his return home, the head of the English embassy, Simon Digby, reflected on the conundrum. If yet a constant hand may be held, the business will be overcome to the king's satisfaction, but if the king of Bohemia, here he means Frederick, will suffer his name to be used by those that hitherto hath done, and take those middle ways of neither relying upon a treaty nor avowedly making a war, he will be ruined irrevocably, and his enemies have the advantage of doing all things against him upon justifiable pretext. Following this embassy, Frederick's relationship with his father-in-law soured. In response to the consistent requests for money from the King of England, and to a refusal to abandon the more unsavoury allies like Bethlen Gabor of Transylvania, who was on the rampage yet again, Frederick was given a dressing down via letter. James insisted that he had never asked Frederick to abandon his allies, and he added that it would not be possible to supply all the monetary assistance which Frederick asked of him. Nor with all the revenues of our crown would it be remotely possible for James to fulfil all that Frederick asked of him, because Frederick, at the end of the day, was asking far too much. James criticised Frederick's efforts to enlist Turkish support for his cause, since inviting Islamic powers into Europe to settle his feud with the Christian emperor could only render him a surfeit of dishonour. Frederick had become all the more stubborn because on the 21st of June 1621 he had learned of yet another example of the emperor's unsuitability for imperial rule. 27 participants in the Bohemian Revolt were executed in Prague, including the rector of Prague's university. In addition, the coin in Bohemia was debased, religious freedoms were curtailed, the elective monarchy abolished, and a great redistribution of Bohemian land among the remaining nobility began in earnest. These actions horrified and incensed Frederick, and convinced him beyond any shadow of a doubt that Ferdinand would not stop here. How could it not be guaranteed, even if he submitted in good faith, that Frederick's Palatine lands would not receive the same treatment? The Bohemians had believed themselves safe, but now their king and emperor moved to recreate that country in his own image, and no power would stand in Bohemia's defence. The only chance Frederick had was to resist. To rely on Ferdinand's mercy was a greater risk than continuing the war. 
in Frederick's mind. In August 1621, Frederick had toyed with the idea of leading an army of exiles and Dutch volunteers to the Palatinate where Spignola was located. Since Ambrogio Spignola refused to extend the truce in the Palatinate as the English embassy moved through it, it seemed inevitable that Frederick's homeland would once again be subject to destruction and devastation. Moving to the Dutch town of Arnhem, Frederick planned to move out, and it was there that he met the 22-year-old Christian of Brunswick, a supporter of the Palatine Bohemian cause, since 1619. Christian was determined to fight for Frederick's cause, and he believed in the Elector Palatine's message that Protestantism depended on the defeat of the Emperor. Christian also professed a curious love for his cousin, the Queen of Bohemia and Frederick's wife, Elizabeth, whom he claimed he would fight for and whose fulfilment he guaranteed personally. The process of returning the Palatine family to their rightful homes was a messy and bitter one for any side that had to endure the quartering of unwelcome soldiers or which had to pay contributions to be left alone. God help those where Mansfeld comes, was a common cry, and hardly painted Frederick, who employed Count Ernst of Mansfeld, in the most favourable light. Mansfeld and his always underpaid troops had rampaged across the empire into the Upper Palatinate, Bohemia, and even Alsace by the end of 1620. Alongside Mansfeld's force of varying size, it reached 20,000 during favourable seasons, Christian of Brunswick added 10,000 somewhat ragtag soldiers, and another new German ally on the scene, George Frederick of Baden-Durlach, added 11,000 men. Thus, Wedgwood noted, by the spring of 1622, Frederick's cause fluttered three gallant little flags in defiance of the emperor. It remained to be seen if these gallant allies would be enough, or if Bethel and Gabor's seasonal campaigns would do the trick. To Frederick, an outlaw, an exile and almost completely dispossessed, this resistance gave him a better chance to triumph in the end than any peace treaty or submission ever could. Whether he believed he would swing from the gallows as those bohemian rebels had done, or whether he simply could not admit any wrongdoing because of his pride, the fact was that Frederick's rebellion would continue for the foreseeable future. Frederick's causes, despite the odds and pressures against it, had survived some grave defeats, and the total victory which Frederick had hoped for remained out of his reach, at least for the moment. In the next episode, we will conclude on Frederick's story of resistance, and examine how the Elector Palatine managed to continue his struggle mostly alone. I hope you'll join me for that, my lovely history friends and patrons. But until then, my name is Zach, and this has been the 30 Years War, episode 23. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you all stay safe and mask up, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.